Chapter Three of Shakespeare Personal Recollections. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ernst Patinama. Shakespeare Personal Recollections by John A. Joyce. Chapter Three Farm Life, Sporting. Coaching on Lucy. Hanging and wiving go by destiny. The drudgery of farm work was not relished by Shakespeare, and the spring of 1586 found the man of destiny more engaged in the sports of Stratford and surrounding villages than in the production of corn, cabbage, turnips, and potatoes. Where fun was to be found, William raised the auction and the highest bidder at the booths of Vanity Fair. He was athletic in mind and body, and, forever like a crypt lion or caged eagle, struggled to shake off his rural environments and dash away into the world of thought and action. Home, with its practical, daily gad-grind morality and responsibility, had no charm for William and his stalwart wife made matters worse by her continual importunities to her vagabond husband to settle down with the mutton-head clodhoppers and tradesmen of Warwickshire. He was not built that way. Her firm logic fell upon deaf ears, for while she was preaching hard work, he was reading the lovely flights of Ovid and pondering over the sugared sonnets of Petrarch and Sir Philip Sidney living in the realms of Clio, Euterpe, and Terpsichore, preparing, even then, his pathway to the great poems of Venus and Adonis, Lucrece, the sonnets, and the immortal plays that were incubating in the procreant soul of the divine bard. He was his own schoolmaster, drawing daily draughts from the universal fountains of nature. And what a blessing it is to the public to have even a social scapegrace hatch out golden ideas for their education and amusement, notwithstanding the neglect of farm and family. The greatest good to the greatest number is best for all time. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. On the 1st of September, 1586, the Lord High Sheriff of Coventry invited the people to an archery and drinking contest. Representatives from 25 villages and towns were selected from the various working guilds and professions to conquer or die, drunk, in the Queen's name for the honour of Old Albion. Ceres, the goddess of harvest, had showered her riches on the fields and forests of Warwickshire, and to glorify her abundance, a great athletic and semi-military carnival was thus given by the authorities to test the bravery, endurance, and greatness of the sons of St. George and the Dragon. The beautiful, broad, undulating, winding highways leading from Stratford, Warwick, Kenilworth, and Birmingham to the ancient town of Coventry were filled with jolly pilgrims to pay devotion at the shrine of Hercules and Bacchus, with the influence of Venus as an ever-present incentive 
to passionate pleasure. That bright September morning I well remember. Dame Nature was just donning her variegated gown of rustic brown, while fitful airs from the realms of Jack Frost were painting the wild roses and forest leaves in cardinal hue, and the blackbird, thrush, and musical nightingale flew low and sang hoarse, but continually, in their assemblages, for migration to lands of sun and flowers. From Kenilworth to Coventry, the rural scenery is as various and beautiful as visions of a dream, and the undulating landscape by hill and dale, field and forest, river, marge, cottage, hall, church and castle, grouping themselves in shifting pictures of beauty and grandeur, where lofty elms and sycamores rise and bend their willowy arms to the passing breeze, indelibly impresses the beholder with a splendid kaleidoscopic view of English hospitality and agricultural cultivation. The tall turrets of monasteries, castles, and soaring church spires of Coventry looked luminous in the morning sunshine, while the brazen tongues of century bells rolled their mellifluous matin tones in voluminous welcome to the great multitude of revellers within her embattled walls and hospitable homes. Promptly at nine o'clock in the morning, in the Leicester Park, twenty-five accoutred longbowmen, in archery uniform, took their stand before the bull's-eye targets two hundred yards away. At the words draw, aim, and fly, the whizzing arrows centred and shivered in the oak targets, and none hit the bulls but Will Shakespeare of Stratford, who was proclaimed winner of the first prize, an ox, a barrel of sack and butt of wine, with the privilege of kissing every girl in the county. The entire day was spent in all kinds of sports, and with roasts, joints, bread, pudding, sack, ale, gin, brandy and whiskey, the revellers did not break up until daylight, when all were laid under the table, but William and his friends Burbage, Condell, and Dick Field, who had come away from his printing-house in London, to witness one of the greatest rural sports of England. Although Stratford was not a day's walk from Coventry, William and his friends did not succeed in getting back for three days, and often they travelled by the light of the moon, believing it was the sun in midday splendour. Anne Hathaway heard of William's official and social victory not in the proud light of a Stratford and Shottery alehouse companions, but with a tongue like a gad she proposed to lash him into shame as a husband, or drive him from his cottage home to earn a living for his infant children. William was a little dubious as to his reception, and, in order to temper the storm to the ambling lamb, he earnestly requested me to accompany him home, as a buffer to his contemplated reception, believing that Anne would mellow her words and actions in the presence of an old friend. I respectfully declined his pressing invitation, and twitted him on being afraid of a woman, when he plaintively exclaimed, Anne Hathaway that gives me pain, she scolds both day and night. Her tongue is pattering like the rain, and speeds my outward flight. I'll soon be gone to London town, and leave her house and land, 
where I will gain some great renown that she may understand. I met William the next morning on his way to the Crown Tavern in search of a martini cocktail, a new drink that an Indian from America had invented for Admiral Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh. William wore the appearance of a man who had slept by a smoky chimney or encountered the butt-end of a threshing flail. He seemed sombre and muttered to himself, When sorrows come, they come not single, but in battalions. I joined him in liquidation at the tavern, for, to tell the truth, my throat felt like the rough edge of a buffalo robe, and my nerves trembled like aspen leaves in July. When our usual village sports filed around the table, and glee and song once more prevailed, William began to soften in his statuesque attitude, and laughingly proposed that we go a-poaching on the imprisoned animals and birds that Squire Lucy corralled for his special delectation, to the detriment of honest apprentices and pure-minded yeomanry. His proposition was agreed to unanimously, and just as the sun tipped the treetops of the Chalco domain, we had scared up a couple of fat deer and sent our arrows through their trembling anatomy, and a number of hares, grouse, and pigeons we slaughtered that evening kept the landlord of the Crown Tavern busy for two days to dish up to his jolly revellers. In this escapade, we only imitated the aristocratic students of Oxford College, who frequently made inroads into lordly domains and took some of the treasures that God and nature intended for all men, instead of being hatched, bred, and watched by impudent and cruel gamekeepers employed by tyrannical landlords in defiance of the natural rights of the people. Even the fish in the Avon, Severn, and Bay were registered and claimed by scrubs of royalty for their exclusive use, fine and imprisonment being imposed for hunting on the land and fishing in the streams that God made for all men. These parliamentary laws should be voted or bulleted out of the statute books, and the people again inherit their inalienable rights. My friend William was arrested by the malicious Lucy, and the gamekeeper, Tom Snap, swore to enough facts to exile, hang, and quarter the Bart. Through the influence of his father and John A. Combe, William, the chief culprit, was not imprisoned, but compelled to pay a fine of one pound ten. He did not have but three shillings, yet the boys secretly passed the hat around in the courtyard and tavern, and soon extricated our chum from the toils of Sir Thomas Lucy. William did not have the courage to face his wife after a week's absence, and told me privately that he was going off instanter by the way of Oxford to London and seek his fortune. I applauded his spunk and determination, and, at his solicitation, willingly joined him in his eloquent rambles. My parents were both dead, and, being of a bohemian tendency, my home has ever been on any spot of the earth where the sun rose or set. Potluck suits me. Natural freedom of body and mind has ever been my greatest delight, and the artificial fashions and tyrannical laws of society I despise and defy, and shall, to my dying day. My mind is my master. Right is my religion, and God is my instructor. I must have liberty with all, as large a charter as the wind, to blow on whom I please. 
the evening before we left stratford william wrote a short note to his wife and said that he would take her advice leave the town and seek his fortune in the whirlpool of grand old london i imagine that anne was delighted to receive his impromptu note for it left her one less mouth to feed and william was equally satisfied to be relieved of the role of playing husband without any of the practical moral adjuncts in passing by the entrance gate to the lordly estate of sir thomas lucy or justice shallow william nailed up the following poetic shot to the hot-headed old squire which was read and copied the next morning by all the market men going to town and the tavern lads going to the country ploughs the tyrant thomas lucy lets no one go to mass he is a squire for queen bess and in parliament an ass fair charcoal is ruined by this bluffer of the state and only his dependents will dare to call him great the deer and hares and pigeons are imprisoned for his use yet poaching lads from stratford pluck the strutting feathered goose End of chapter three recording by ernst patinama august the third two thousand eight amsterdam the netherlands